Ashley. Let's go around the horn, and I'll assume if you give me a go, you've got no instrumentation problems. Booster? Go flight. Retro? Go flight. Fido? Go flight. Control? Telcom? Go. TNC? Econ? Capcom? Go. Surgeon? Go. ONC? Go. AFC? Go. Network? Go. You got everything up? Go. Hello, I'm Ian Christie, and this is Terranauts. Today we're going to get back to the historical narrative of human spaceflight a little bit. In our past episodes, we'd worked our way up to the end of Project Mercury, Gordon Cooper's flight MA9 in May of 1963. Today I want to rewind the clock just a little to the fall of 1962, to the moment uh, of John F. Kennedy's famous We Choose to Go to the Moon speech because this is really the point in time when the space race kind of shifted into a new gear. So let's take a quick look at the state of humanity's efforts to leave the planet at that time. Obviously, much of the activity was in the Soviet Union. Now, we haven't talked much about the Soviet space program, which is an omission that I am intending to correct soon, because I have finally tracked down some references, and I'm finding out a lot about the early days of space In the post-World War II era in Russia, I'm not quite ready to do a full episode on that yet, but you can assume that it'll be coming soon. But, by the way of a brief overview, we can say that in the fall of 1962, the Soviet Union was still the leading nation in space. That much is, and was, clear at the time. The Soviet Union had been the first to launch a satellite into orbit and the first to launch a human into space, and unlike NASA... The first manned Soviet launch had put Yuri Gagarin into orbit. But unlike NASA, and unbeknownst to anyone outside of the Soviet Union, the Soviet space program was actually not a single program, but several competing programs, each centered around a different chief designer. The most famous of these was Sergei Korolev, who was the driving force behind the Sputnik and the first manned vehicle, Vostok. But the different chief designers in the Soviet program didn't really get along, and there was a great deal of bureaucratic competition between them for influence and for funding. And in 1962, this was actually having a significant impact on the progress of the overall space program. The Vostok program that had launched Yuri Gagarin in April of 1961 had moved to a second much longer flight in the summer of 1961 when German Titov launched on Vostok 2 on the 6th of August, 1961. He had spent more than a day in orbit circling the Earth 17 times. This was a mark that Project Mercury would not match until its last flight, almost two years later. But then there followed a full year before another cosmonaut made it to orbit. And again, unbeknownst to anybody in the West, this was largely due to issues that had been encountered on Vostok 2. Chief among these issues was the severe bout of space sickness that Titov suffered while on orbit. These days, the phenomenon known officially as space adaptation syndrome has been much better characterized and understood, and it turns out that it affects a significant number of travelers in space, maybe as many as half. But at the time, it came as a bit of a shock after Gagarin's relatively incident-free flight. Titov was so severely affected so as to almost be incapacitated at times. 
Now, with only a sample size of two to go by, officials simply didn't know if the experience of Gagarin or of Titov was more typical of what humans would experience in space. So plans for Vostok after Gagarin's flight, spurred on by Korolev, had been to begin to dramatically increase the duration of further flights, as the Soviets had ambitions both of building an orbiting space station and of going to the moon, and both of which would require much longer flights. But Titov's experience had suddenly raised significant concerns about how humans would adapt to longer and longer periods of time in space. Within the organizational and bureaucratic labyrinth that was the Soviet space program, these concerns ultimately delayed the next two Vostok flights as the various parts of the space program jockeyed for position and sought to gain influence and funding during the process of the various reviews of the Vostok 2 experience. Now, one of the positive outcomes of this internal review was the initiation of a significant effort to study the effect of human spaceflight on the human body, which would eventually see the Soviet Union, and then Russia, take the lead in this field, and it's probably fair to say that lead persists until this day. The bureaucratic inertia was finally overcome by John Glenn's first orbital flight in February of 1962. Unhappy that this event had effectively moved the spotlight from the Soviet to the American space program, Soviet Premier Nikita Khrushchev pushed for a response that would eclipse the American success. This eventually took the form of the Vostok 3 and Vostok 4 missions, which were launched on successive days in August of 1962. The Soviet Union therefore established a new first of having two spacecraft and two citizens, Andrian Nikolaev and Pavel Popovich, on orbit at the same time. This was a milestone that the United States would not reach until well into the Gemini program. Both flights lasted for more than three days, also establishing an endurance record that NASA would not approach for a number of years. The spacecraft operated independently while on orbit and were not equipped for and did not attempt a rendezvous while on orbit. Although they did approach closely enough for Nikolaev to report sighting the Vostok 4 capsule from Vostok 3 at one point. Of course, at the time, these details were unknown outside the Soviet Union, and many observers in the West were left to wonder if the Soviets had developed a spacecraft that was capable of on-orbit maneuvering, a capability that would have been significant in the context of being able to conduct precision attacks from space against targets on the ground, which was still very much a preoccupation uh, and concern for the Americans. The Vostok 3-4 flight did, therefore succeed to some extent in moving the spotlight back to the Soviet program, at least within the community that followed spaceflight carefully. It is, in fact, arguable that this response to NASA's success was at least partially responsible for the acceleration of efforts in the U.S. to make plans to move beyond Project Mercury and to build on its successes. Uh, but before we come to NASA's manned programs beyond Project Mercury, Let's take a look at what else was going on in space in the fall of 1962. Uh, it's certainly fair to say that while launching humans into orbit got the lion's share of attention then and now, in fact, humanity was finding ways to go to space that did not involve actually having a member of the species leave the planet. In addition to the civil space programs, the militaries of both the U.S. and USSR were continuing their space programs. 
These programs focused on the design and production of ever more powerful and accurate intercontinental ballistic missiles, which was still in some ways the overriding interest of the two superpowers, um, the means of effectively delivering atomic weapons at great distances. But the military space programs were also increasingly becoming alive to the possibility of using space as the high ground from which to observe any part of the planet, including the territory of their erstwhile enemies. Uh, the Soviets were focused on their Zenit satellites, and the U.S. was building their Corona Keyhole satellites. Unlike the spy satellites that we have become used to, both of these satellite programs were actually designed around capsules full of cameras that would be placed in orbit, would take their pictures using film cameras, and then would return to Earth in a return capsule so the film could be developed and studied on the ground. But humanity was not only finding ways to look at our planet, but finding ways to look outward from our planet as well. More than a year before President Kennedy's speech, the first spacecraft to explore beyond Earth orbit had been launched by the Soviets. Venera 1 was launched in February 1961, bound for a rendezvous with the planet Venus in May of that year. While the rendezvous did successfully take place, no data regarding the flyby was ever received, because telemetry to the probe was lost a week into the mission. Still, humanity had stretched its reach beyond the orbit of our planet. The first flight to the moon had taken place in April uh, of 1962. NASA had launched Ranger 4, which was designed to quite literally crash into the moon. Before impact, it was designed to collect gamma-ray data while in transit to the moon, to study the radar reflectivity of the lunar surface, and to transmit some pictures of the moon's surface just prior to impact. An onboard seismometer capsule was designed to survive the impact and return data from the lunar surface. Unfortunately, like the Venera mission, the Ranger 4 spacecraft effectively failed to call home after its separation from its main booster. Its trajectory was accurate, though, and it did reach its final destination, crashing into the moon's surface on the 26th of April, 1962. Once again, it was not really a successful mission, but it was the first time that humanity had made an impact, literally, on a celestial body, not our own. Just prior to the Ranger mission, NASA had launched a successful mission to study another celestial body, although without leaving Earth orbit. The first orbiting solar observatory mission, known as OSO-1, launched in March of 1962 and marked the start of a successful solar science program of eight satellites, that would last until 1986. As we've discussed on the podcast before, there were also a number of commercially-oriented Earth-focused Earth satellites uh, that were also up and running by the fall of 1962. The first weather satellite, Tyros-1, had been launched in April of 1960, and the broadcast of the very first images of Earth from space had followed fairly shortly. In July of 1962, the first active direct relay communication satellite, Telstar-1, had been launched inaugurating not only transcontinental communications through space, but also the era of live via satellite by enabling the first transatlantic television broadcasts. And in late 1962, the U.S. and the USSR were to be joined by the third nation in space when Canada launched Alouette-1 to study the upper atmosphere from space. So, it was fair to say that traveling to space had moved from the realm of science fiction 
to that of science and engineering fact, and that our understanding of the myriad ways in which we could use access to space was expanding rapidly. But traveling to space was still a rare, difficult, and to some extent dangerous endeavor. So when President Kennedy stood up to the microphone on that September day in Rice University and challenged his countrymen to go to the moon before the end of the decade, not because it was easy, but because it was hard, he really, really wasn't kidding. Getting a man to the moon and returning him safely to Earth looked every bit as hard in September 1962 as getting anything off the planet had seemed a decade earlier. But while that speech in Texas in the fall of 1962 is widely seen as the start of NASA's quest for the moon, the effort had actually started a bit earlier, although the fact was maybe not widely appreciated outside of NASA at the time. In fact, President Kennedy had laid the marker of going to the moon down more than a year before his Rice speech, when, just following Al Shepard's first suborbital flight, he had included a proposal to commit to a moon landing before the decade is out, in a special message to Congress on urgent national needs in May of 1961. It was that event that really supercharged NASA. Since that time, the Space Task Group, which had originally been set up really to run the Project Mercury, had become the Manned Space Flight Center and had been given a new home in Houston, Texas. And the group was now managing three manned spaceflight programs. Of course, the first of these was Mercury, and the second was actually Apollo, because Apollo had actually started in 1960 and as a project to investigate the next generation spacecraft, uh, one that was designed to carry more crew members, like up to three, and to support missions of significantly longer duration. But once President Kennedy issued the Lunar Challenge, the Apollo program had immediately become the program that was going to take NASA and humanity to the surface of the moon. The third program was actually a child of the first two, even though it would ultimately get off the planet second. And this program was, of course, Gemini. Now, a note on pronunciation. If you're like me, you desperately want to pronounce the name of this program as Gemini. But NASA his the NASA history is quite explicit that the project itself used the pronunciation Gemini. And so that is what I am going to attempt to do, although I cannot guarantee that the odd Gemini uh, might slip out. So I apologize to any Project Gemini veterans if I happen to get it wrong. As I said, Gemini was very much the child of Mercury and Apollo. In modern project speak, we would say that Mercury provided the technology push for Gemini and Apollo provided the market pull what would eventually become Project Gemini started as a small internal Project Mercury study on how to improve the Mercury spacecraft. It was officially known as Mercury Mark II, and its original budget was a few tens of thousands of dollars. And in what must be one of the world's greatest example of what is known in the business as scope creep, it eventually became a program consisting of 12 orbital flights, a staff of thousands of NASA, U.S. Air Force, Navy, and contractor personnel, and a final budget of over a billion dollars. But, at first, it was really a result of the fact that Project Mercury was run by engineers, and very good engineers, in fact. And what I mean by that is that pretty much every good engineer I have ever known, once they get about three-quarters done designing and building something, 
immediately decides that they could do it better and wants to start over again on a new and improved version. And that is exactly what happened on Project Mercury. Once the capsule design had been fixed and the first capsules had been built and tested, even before the first suborbital flight, the engineers began to realize that they really, what they really wanted, as noted in On the Shoulders of Titans, the history of the Project Gemini, was, quote, a more refined capsule with better operational and maintenance capabilities, a better door, better wiring, possibly a bi-propellant control system, etc. In short, they wanted the capsule they would have designed originally if they'd known then what they knew now. The man assigned to study this challenge, and who eventually acted as the midwife to Project Gemini's birth, was Canadian James Chamberlain. Jim Chamberlain had been working as an aeronautical engineer and designer for more than 20 years at that point. He'd been the chief of design of the ill-fated Avro Arrow, and when Arrow was cancelled, he was one of the legion of Canadian engineers recruited by the Space Task Group into NASA. In February of 1961, when Bob Gilruth assigned him to work on the improved Mercury design, he was the chief of the Space Task Group Engineering Division. Although soon, the new design would be taping, taking up enough of his time that he delegated much of the supervision of the operation of the division to his assistants. This was partly because Chamberlain himself was spending an increasing amount of time in St. Louis, working out of an office at the McDonnell Aircraft Corporation. He was thinking about doing a lot more than just making some minor modifications to Mercury, though. As noted in On the Shoulders of Titans, quote, James Chamberlain followed his own course. He'd arrived in St. Louis in February, convinced that his job was to redesign the Mercury capsule from the bottom up, unquote. Chamberlain, as head of STG Engineering, knew better than anyone the limitations of the Mercury spacecraft. Put simply, the original design of the Mercury capsule, which was basically built to be the smallest and lightest container that could get a human being into orbit, had resulted in a highly integrated design that was a bit of a nightmare to build, test, check out, and launch. Worse still, Adapting the Mercury design to do anything beyond its original design goal of getting one human being into orbit for a short period of time was actually going to be a significant challenge. The basic problem with the Mercury design was that you couldn't change anything without having to change uh, everything. This was because most of the various systems were all contained inside the cabin with the pilot. In order to make everything fit, the components were placed wherever they would fit. Kind of like some huge game of Tetris, where the location of every piece had more to do with its size and shape and less to do with how it had to be connected to all of the other pieces. Now remember as well that this was long before the days of digital computing and uh, common data buses, so every electrical signal that had to be sent from one piece of electronics to another had to be carried on its own wire. In addition, many of the interfaces were not electrical, they were actually mechanical with the result that the capsule was a maze of wiring harnesses, tubes, and mechanical linkages. It meant that it was almost impossible to do more than one task at a time, since everything overlapped with everything else. And because everything was inside the capsule, it meant that it was virtually impossible for more than one technician to work on anything at a time. And those technicians needed to be very experienced with the design itself, lest their work on one system would move or disturb connections to other systems that would later fail or show up as being out of calibration. Which meant that every time any system had to be repaired, adjusted, or changed out, 
Pretty much every other system had to be rechecked to ensure that it had not been affected by the repair. All in all, the Mercury spacecraft was a model of design efficiency to do the one thing that it had been meant to do. Unfortunately, that meant, as so often happens, that it was an exquisite bespoke design that was expensive to test, maintain, and repair. And it was also practically useless for anything other than the purpose for which it had been designed. Faced with this reality, Jim Chamberlain and the engineering team he assembled from NASA and McDonnell decided that what was really needed was basically a brand new design. A design where the various spacecraft systems were modularized, where all of the components of any given system were placed in a single module where they could be connected and disconnected without disturbing other parts of the spacecraft. The modules needed to be, where possible, outside the pilot's cabin so they could be accessed without working in the cramped confines of the capsule. This also meant that multiple modules could be accessed independently at the same time, so that multiple checkout and maintenance tasks could be performed at the same time. In short, now that they knew what it took to build and prepare a capsule to go to space, the engineers wanted to build a capsule that was designed to make it easy to accomplish those tasks. As I said, it was a classic piece of engineering development, and anyone out there who is an engineer knows this because they've been vigorously nodding their head for the last 30 seconds. Chamberlain's design went so far as to actually redesign the launch abort system, which was really at the heart and soul of the Mercury capsule. Uh, the choice for Mercury had been uh, to put an escape tower on top of the capsule. This was really, actually, a whole rocket system unto itself, whose job it was to lift the capsule and its occupant away from the booster if a potentially fatal error occurred during launch. It was designed to get the astronaut inside the capsule far enough away, quickly enough, that even a complete um, rapid and unplanned disassociation of the rocket and all of its contents would be survivable. It was a well-designed system for its purpose, it was also mechanically and electronically linked to countless other sensors and systems in the capsule to make sure that the escape sequence could proceed automatically under a variety of anomalous conditions. The system also added several hundred kilograms of weight that had to be lifted off the pad, but which were then jettisoned shortly after launch. Chamberlain thought he had a solution. All that would have to happen was for Mercury to switch to a new booster. The Air Force's Titan booster used a different oxidizer and fuel mixture, which was sufficiently less reactive so that the danger zone in a launch failure would be smaller, and an astronaut could actually safely escape the capsule on an injection seat. And then Jim Chamberlain went one step further. One of the largest but hidden costs of Mercury launch was the cost of the recovery effort. As we have discussed previously, as the Mercury missions lengthened, the area that had to be covered by recovery forces became larger and larger, and soon the Navy and the Air Force were having to provide literally hundreds of ships and planes and thousands of sailors and airmen to support every Mercury launch. Jim Chamberlain proposed to eliminate all of this cost by allowing the capsule to actively fly itself back to its recovery zone by replacing the simple parachute system with a flexible wing system. That would be stored like a parachute, but then would deploy once the capsule 
had slowed down enough. The flexible wing would turn the capsule into a sort of giant paraglider that the astronaut could then pilot for a gentle landing on a runway or other prepared surface. In short, what Jim Chamberlain wanted to do was build not just an improved Mercury capsule that would support slightly extended mission durations, he wanted to build a new capsule that was fit for new tasks and new missions. He even proposed, more than once, that it was a capsule that could go to the moon, um, except that wasn't what Progr Project Mercury was set up to do. Going to the moon was Apollo's mission. In retrospect, I think I see that there might have been a certain amount of um, organizational dynamics at play here. Um, when it was first stood up, Apollo was the new kid on the block in 1960 and 61, and very much a paper exercise. But after the president's congressional message, and particularly after the Rice University speech, Apollo was rapidly becoming the star of the NASA universe, and Mercury had moved into its mature phase. Because it was set up in parallel with Mercury, while Mercury was actually right in the middle of its most challenging days, the Apollo program probably did not draw strongly on Mercury veterans, at least not initially. So you had Project Mercury pushing hard and gaining hard-won experience, but also increasingly feeling after John Glenn's flight that attention was moving on inside NASA and in the public as well. Mercury engineers were going to work every day dealing with the problems that, to some extent, had already been solved, uh, many of which they had created for themselves in the way they designed the spacecraft and the program. Apollo, on the other hand, was being set up to meet new and, to some extent, all-consuming challenges. Um, no doubt the Apollo engineers were also learning from Mercury's experiences, and no doubt they were also vowing, at least amongst themselves, quietly, not to make those mistakes again, or words to that effect. I'm speculating, of course. None of these kinds of conflicts were ever explicit, and they certainly aren't talked about in any of the official histories or memoirs, but you read between the lines, and if you've ever worked in an organization like NASA, you have to know that some part of this tension was there. So, there was a strong desire by people like Jim Chamberlain and many other Mercury engineers, I suspect, to find a way to extend Project Mercury beyond simply getting an American into orbit. A strong desire to continue to be relevant to the larger NASA mission. But, unfortunately, that wasn't the job that Jim Chamberlain and his team had been given at least in the minds of everyone except Jim Chamberlain and his team. Chamberlain had been sent to St. Louis to look for ways of upgrading the Mercury spacecraft to make it cheaper to build and fly and to make it capable of staying in orbit for 24 hours. And so when Chamberlain in the summer of 1961 presented his ideas for Mercury Mark II, and it was initially met with, um, shall we say, a cool reception? But then it was actually the Apollo program that came to the rescue and started Jim Chamberlain's new spacecraft down the road of becoming a whole new project. Even before the president's announcement of the goal of getting to the moon before the end of the decade, uh, the realization was beginning to dawn inside the space task group that the step from Mercury to Apollo was maybe a step too far going from one single astronaut in orbit around the Earth to multiple astronauts on the surface of the Moon required mastering a number of techniques and technologies that simply couldn't be tested by the Mercury program. 
A voyage to the moon was going to require multiple astronauts to spend more than a week in space, living together, both inside and outside their capsule. By the end of Mercury, NASA would not have ever had one, more than one astronaut on orbit at a time, and only for a bit more than a day. NASA would never have had an astronaut leave the safety of the capsule and work in space. And it would never have had more than one spacecraft in flight at one time. And many of the potential Apollo mission designs required not only separate spacecraft, but it required them to perform intricate and utterly untried maneuvers in space. For all these reasons, it was becoming clear that a lot of work would need to be done before Apollo. In fact, there was a lot to be done before some of Apollo's final design parameters could even be settled. Based on Chamberlain's work, it was becoming clear that Mercury simply couldn't do that work. A new spacecraft and a new program was needed to bridge the gap from where Mercury could take NASA to where Apollo needed to pick up the baton and carry it to the moon. And so, in August of 1961, Jim Chamberlain was told to stop working on the design of a new spacecraft and start working on the design of a new program. And that program would eventually become Gemini. Uh, but that's about all the time we have for this episode, so we won't be able to talk about the actual birth of Project Gemini. Tune in next time when we'll talk a little bit more about the technological imperatives that were driving this decision to set up Gemini and how it continued its evolution from one engineer's desire to build a better spacecraft to the program that taught NASA how to go to the moon. That's all for now. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you again soon. Come on, let's keep the chatter down.